Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5? We have been working our way through the book of Ephesians here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we are have just entered a section in Ephesians 5 from verses 22 to 33 that we are calling God's design for a spirit-filled marriage. Now, let me just start off this morning by saying that it's not always easy obeying what God has said. It's always necessary, but not always easy, especially because Paul the Apostle said, actually, he warned us in 2 Timothy 3, that the time just prior to Jesus' return would be characterized by an all-consuming love of self that would cause people to become proud, arrogant, rebellious, and lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. Now, unfortunately, that attitude has kind of seeped into the church and has infected God's people as well, which means that Christians often, you know, bristle and become upset when someone teaches what I'm going to be teaching for the next few weeks out of Ephesians 5, which doesn't promote self-love, but sacrificial love. And you know, we live at a time when the love of self has grown so strong, it's overshadowed almost everything else. Uh, today in the church, I'm sorry to say, so much of the preaching is man-centered. What God's going to do for you, how God's going to bless your life, all the wonderful goodies God's going to give to you. It's very little preaching about the cross anymore today. Very little Christ-centered preaching, a lot of man-centered stuff. We've gotten used to that, and so when you hear a message that really is not about me at all, uh, only in the sense that it tells me to die to self, that's not a popular message in general. Now, I appreciate you guys, you're, you're really good about hearing the tough stuff. But even some here uh, with us over the next few weeks, well, it's going to be tough to uh, accept some of the stuff that we're going to be teaching, let alone to apply it into your marriage. But again, I want to remind you that marriage was a creation by God before sin entered into the world. It's not an institution that man developed. It's a creation of God. God has got the right to tell us how it functions. God has given us instructions in his word about how our marriages are to operate, the roles that God has placed men in and women in. And you know what? To obey God is to be blessed. To disobey God is to reap the consequences of disobedience. If you don't do it the way God has designed it to work, if you try to put it together in some other way than what God has given you the instructions in his word for, guess what? You may call it a marriage. It may have a certificate somewhere that says it's a marriage, but it's not going to work like a marriage. Not the way God designed it to work. So we have to understand that. And I realize that God's instructions to men and women with regard to their roles in marriage, are at absolute odds with the culture. In fact, the things that God has said about marriage in particular are attacked by the world as being archaic, intolerant, discriminatory, and proof that we as Christians are completely out of touch with the modern, enlightened, egalitarian society that many say we have become. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay if people say that in the world because you know what? Jesus said, to uh, us as his disciples, woe to you when, people, all, when the world loves you and speaks well of you. For so they did the false prophets before you. Jesus said, I'm going to tell you what, guys, told his disciples the night before his crucifixion. If the world has hated me, and it has, it's going to hate you also because you belong to me, you represent me, you speak my words to this world. So be warned and be prepared 
The world is going to attack. But don't worry about that. He said in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, you're to go into all the world and you're going to preach the gospel. And when people get saved, you're to teach them. You're to make them disciples by teaching them to observe everything I have taught you. Today, the church looks at the word of God like some kind of a spiritual smorgasbord. They open it up. Oh, I like this. I'll take this. I like that. Oh, but this I don't care for. I'll, I'll reject that. And it's all about picking and choosing what I think I want to do, not all that God has said. But what did Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by most of the words that come out of the mouth of God. The ones you like that come from the mouth of God. No, man shall live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so I just want to say that because it's, we, we're going to say some tough things today, not just today, but in the weeks to come. And uh, it's not my intention to condemn anybody or judge anybody. I, you know, I just want your lives, your marriages, and your families to be all that God desires them to be so that he can bless them as much as he desires to bless them. Now, with that in mind, this week and next, we're going to be looking at God's command to wives. And girls, hang in there. We'll get to the guys. We'll get them. Uh, after that, we'll, we'll look at God's command to husbands. But let me remind you that this section comes on the heels of a very strong admonition that Paul gave to us as believers in verse 18 when he commanded us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, Paul realized that without being filled with the Holy Spirit, there's no way we would have the capacity or the ability to obey what he wanted to write after that. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential if you are going to have the ability, the strength, uh, the capacity to do what God is telling you to do, yes, in the Bible in general, but right here about marriage in particular. So this is very important. If you weren't here when we looked at verse 18, uh, get the CDs because we went into that in depth. I think it's a very important section. In fact, without it, forget about trying to obey what comes after it because it's just not going to happen. I mean, the only way husbands and wives can fulfill their responsibilities as Christians to one another is if they are spirit-filled and word-oriented. The word of God has got to be in your heart. So if you're not right with God, if you not really have the, a heart to obey God, you're, not, you're going to have a very difficult time obeying what he has said in the way of how you are to relate to your spouse. And I'll go as far as to say this, the degree to which you are walking with God in the spirit will be the degree to which you're going to be able to, or you will be, obeying what God has said. I mean, the more we want to give our whole heart to God, the more he gives us power to be all that he wants us to be. If we want to just do our thing and obey God a little bit, well, we'll have a little power. And we won't have enough, I'm convinced, to do the really hard things, like die to self in our marriages and have them be all that God wants them to be. All right, so let's look at verses 22 through 24 this morning, just part one. God's command to wives, where Paul said in verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, when Paul said in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. We saw last week the Greek word there was hupatasso. comes from two words. Hupa means under and tasso means to line up or arrange. 
So hupatasa, which was a military term, by the way, uh, literally means to voluntarily line up or arrange yourself under the authority of someone else. In the Christian context, it means to not try to put yourself over people all the time where you're lording over them and getting them to try to serve you. Jesus said, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. That's the idea. As Christians, we are not to fight for the top, we're to fight for the bottom. I'm to esteem you better than me. You're more important to me than I am. That's humility. So I want to push you above me. I want you to be above me. I want you to be blessed. I want to serve you in any way I can. That's the idea here. And uh, in marriage, of course, it means that God has made the man the authority in marriage and a wife is to line up under him and to submit to him. The word does not uh, speak of superiority or inferiority. When God talks about husbands being in authority over their wives, please do not get the mistaken notion God is saying husbands are superior or more spiritual than their wives. That is not what the word implies. It's just a word that describes function. Function. There has to be somebody in the marriage who has the final say, who can cast the deciding vote. I mean, otherwise, your marriage would grind to a halt when it came to some very difficult decisions that maybe you didn't agree on. Who's going to be able to cast the final vote? Who's going to be able to say, well, you know what? We've come to an impasse. We have talked about it, prayed about it. This decision has to be made. God says the husbands have the responsibility to make the final decision. So ladies, it's not about them being more spiritual than you. Uh, in fact, it's not even the same Greek word, hupotasso, as Paul uses in chapter 6 when he talks about children obey your parents and slaves obey your master. That's a, the Greek word hupakuo. Hupakuo, that does mean obey. And it was used often in the Bible of a slave obeying his master. Look, wives are not slaves. They don't stand at attention in the room where their husband is on his throne waiting to fulfill every command he barks from his easy chair. That's not what the Bible is teaching here, all right? She is his partner, his equal. Galatians 3.28 makes that abundantly clear. There is neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ. But see, people use that then to negate the whole idea of authority and submission. You can have both. You can have equality and still have one in authority and one in submission. So I don't understand that. Anybody here ever been in the military? You join the military, our Constitution says you as a, a United States citizen are equal with your commanding officer. But he's greater than you or she's greater than you in rank. You have voluntarily placed yourself under their authority. The same thing is true in the Godhead. Jesus Christ and the Father are both God. They're together one God with the Spirit. But Jesus said, my father is greater than I. What did he mean? He didn't mean that the father was a greater God than him. He simply meant that, you know what? I have voluntarily, read Philippians 2, I have voluntarily left you know, my throne in heaven and did not count equality with the father, something to be clung to, but I emptied myself. I became a man to, to learn submission and obedience, and I died for the sins of humanity Jesus Christ voluntarily placed himself under his father's authority is the idea here. So husbands and wives in the eyes of God are absolutely equal with each other. We're, we're, we're both redeemed sinners, saved by grace. 
And on that level, we are all equal. And yet God has chosen that the husbands be in authority over their wives. Now, in verse 22, again, Paul said to the wives, wives, submit to your what? Own husbands. Wives don't have to submit to all husbands. And I say that because there are some groups out there that teach this. You know, husbands have authority over all wives. Folks, I just have enough to have authority over my wife. I mean, I make enough boneheaded decisions that affect her. I don't want to start trying to affect all you gals. I mean, I'm thankful that Paul said, you know, be subject to your own husbands, all right? The Greek word for own there is a Greek word we get our word idiosyncrasy and idiot from. Paul's saying, look, gals, here it is. Submit to your weird, peculiar, idiot husbands. Don't try to figure it out. Don't try to make it, you know, it's just, you know, I know it doesn't make sense at times, but it's what God wants, just do it, is the idea. But I think, seriously, what Paul is also bringing forth from this passage, he's conveying the idea of belonging. This is important. The husband belongs to his wife and she belongs to him. Therefore, the idea is she should desire to submit to him because he has committed himself to her as the one who has promised to provide for, protect, and care for her. See, this idea of submission has more to do with the husband's responsibility than it ever has to do with the wife's responsibility. I know some guys like to use Ephesians 5.22. They have it, you know, embroidered on a large, you know, sign that they put, you know, in the kitchen there. And it's, wives submit to your husbands. And, and they beat their wives down with this constant submission. And, you know, when I get guys like that in my office, you know, who, who have got this warped concept of submission, I try to explain to them, look, you know, the idea here is that, you know, she's to submit to you. But you, verse 25 tells us, are to sacrifice yourself for her. She's to submit, you're to die. Who's got the greater responsibility? Your authority over her is not dictator and she's the doormat. You, it's a servant leadership kind of a thing where you are to lead her by your example, by your love, by your protection, by your caring for her. She feels safe. She feels secure. She feels like you have her best interest at heart. You cherish her. You don't take her for granted. How could a woman not want to submit to a guy like that? It's really more about what the guy is supposed to do than the gal. We represent Christ. Christ took the initiative to die for us before we ever accepted his invitation to be his bride. So I say to the guys, it's your move. You are to be the one who makes the first move in servanthood. And your wife will often then respond to what she sees you doing and the way you're living for Christ. But I think that Peter reinforced this concept in 1 Peter chapter 3, where he talked about husbands are commanded to honor their wives as the weaker vessel. Now, a lot of women jump on that and go, oh, you know, that these... Paul and Peter, they're just so chauvinistic, you know. And look, that wasn't a put-down. That, that was not a put-down toward women. It was really an admonition, really, of responsibility to the men to love and cherish and protect and provide for their wives who are weaker physically, not weaker mentally, not weaker spiritually, but weaker physically. You know, God has designed men and women that men are physically stronger because they're the ones who protect who go out, you know, in the old days and did the hunting, you know, uh, you know, back then. 
uh, and you know, we just the manly stuff. And really, it's about watching over your wife, cherishing her, protecting her. She's physically weaker, okay? Um, in general, I've seen some women that can no doubt kick my butt, but I mean, in general terms, that uh, some of these gals today that are weightlifters, I wouldn't want to mess with them, but. Just in general, women are the weaker vessel, and Peter says, guys, you need to understand that, cherish them, and watch over them, and, and do it with all your heart, kind of a thing. Now, in Colossians 3, verse 18, we see the parallel passage of Ephesians 5, 22. Listen to what Paul says in the Colossians 3, 18. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. He, changed, he adds a little something there. Those words, as is fitting, is the Greek verb aneko. And aneko was a word that was used of something that was legally binding. Legally binding. And here's what Paul is saying. And again, this is not very popular uh, with the world, no doubt. But what Paul is saying that a wife's submission to her husband is not a suggestion by God nor an option for her. In the mind of God, it's a legally binding arrangement in the context of marriage. Today, of course, everything that God has stated categorically, definitively, in a commandment form, people want to come around and say, well, you know what, they want to soften it. It's not the Ten Commandments anymore, it's the Ten Suggestions. Because people want, in this rebellious age we're living, and they want to get around what God has clearly said, right? So if I soften it, make it seem like God really didn't mean to sound that definitive, then I can kind of get around what he's obviously saying. And this, of course, really finds, you know, in marriage, it really finds a, a thing where a lot of people will use the target marriage specifically, how that God really never intended. And I've heard all kinds of teachings, even from Christians, who try to soften what God has clearly said about wives submitting to, her, uh, to their husbands. God says, this is not a suggestion. This is a commandment in the context of marriage. It's a legally binding thing. When you gave your heart to that man and became his wife, it was a legal covenant you entered into in my mind. And part of the covenant is he's to watch over you, protect you, care for you, provide for you. You're to submit to him. It's a legally binding arrangement. Pastor John MacArthur in his book, The Fulfilled Family, had this to say, and I quote, he said, I recognize that this whole issue of authority and submission in the home is not very popular, but do you know why? It's because we've had our minds literally brainwashed that we are doing an injustice to women by categorizing them in this way. If you have trouble accepting these principles, it's because you are a part of a society that has been victimized by a godless, Christless, non-biblical philosophy of living that has been perpetrated for centuries on human thinking. What we're seeing today in our culture is the result of the thinking of the French Revolution, which was a humanistic, egalitarian approach to life. They believed in a society where there was absolute equality, a classless, godless kind of humanistic existence. These ideas have been brewing for years and have now come to full brew, and our age is drinking them in. No classes, no sexes, no distinctions, no authority, no submission, and no humility. Our society has been victimized by this atheistic approach to life. 
And the church, instead of rejecting it, falls right into it by supporting equal rights for homosexuals, advocating women elders and women preachers, and functioning on a philosophical godless hermeneutic that forces a reinterpretation of the Bible in terms of our present time instead of accepting the authority of the Word of God. End quote. Now, a lot of people absolutely don't want to hear that, but it's true. And as Christians, we must stop allowing the world to conform us to its way of thinking and start allowing the Holy Spirit to conform us to the thinking of God's Word. I mean, we have got to stop letting the culture form our opinions and uh, our belief system. We are Christians. We don't go to the world to get instructions on anything spiritual or moral, by the way. We've got to go to the Word of God and know what God has said about this. We can't let the world, you know, form our belief system. We have to stand firm on the Word of God, that we obey every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If we don't like something God has said, know this, the problem is not with God, it's with us. It's our rebellious heart that the devil is feeding into. The culture is only happy to exalt you, to tell you it's all about you. Don't worry about living for anybody but you. It's all about your happiness. Jesus says, no, it's not about your happiness. It's about God's holiness. It's about God's glory. It's about you dying to self and living for me. We're not hearing that too much anymore. Now, some groups teach that this authority that husbands have over their wives is absolute. So if he tells you to go out and start being a prostitute to bring more money into the family, you've got to do that. Now, come on. I mean... Where this lunacy comes from, I don't know. But people don't really read their Bible. I don't even think these folks are Christians who would teach that. But they claim to be. But I love, you know, you read inside the Word, the Holy Spirit always has, you know, anticipated these things. And we'll add little things in the Word that, you know, listen to what Paul said in verse 22. He said, you know, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as what? As to the Lord. You know what that means? Yes, women, submit to your husbands unless... They tell you to do something God has said not to do or not to do something God has told you to do if they violate something that Jesus, the Lord of your life, would tell you to do or not to do, then you are to obey God rather than men, even your husband. So if he tells you, honey, uh, you know what, I want to go to this party they're having at this person's house that I know because we're going to get drunk over there and we're going to swap wives and things. Well, you got to be crazy. I'm not going to that. Or let's go out and watch uh, that new X-rated movie that's come out. No, I, I can't do that. I can't fill my mind with that garbage. Or if he forbids you from going to church or reading your Bible in the house, sorry, love you, I will submit to you in anything that is not a violation of my beliefs, what the Lord has told me to do. So I have to deny that. I, God has told me to be in the Word. God has told me to be in the fellowship with the saints. So it's not an absolute thing, Right? But again, let me read verses 22 to 24 again. He said, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Now, I'm going to save that more for next week, because I'm going to get into that more next time. But he said in verse 24, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And again, when he says in verse 24, just as the church is subject to Christ, so the wives are to be subject to their husbands. The Greek word again is hupotasso. 
And it means to voluntarily place yourself under the authority of another. Now let me ask you this. Did anybody force you to become a Christian? Did anybody force those here this morning who have received Christ, did anybody force you to do that? You became a Christian of your own free will. You voluntarily gave your life to Jesus Christ and placed yourself under his authority who is now your Lord and you are his what? Servant. That was voluntary. But once you did that, now obedience to him is mandatory. The same is true in marriage. Nobody forces anybody to get married. Nobody forces somebody in the United States, I would imagine. I mean, there might be some exceptions, but for the most part, nobody forces a woman or a young lady to marry a guy. She does it voluntarily. But know this, Paul is saying, once you put yourself voluntarily under that man's authority in marriage, now submission becomes mandatory. It's not something you can pick and choose. Well, when he tells me to do this, I will, but I don't like this. And it's, you know what, as long as he's not violating something God has said to you, you are to submit to him. And Paul made that clear when he said that she is to be subject in everything. Uh, it's not everything universally or absolutely. It's just everything that's in accordance with the will of God. Now, again, this is not something the world is open to hearing most of the time. You think that they would be given the condition of marriage and family in our country. I mean, it's just absolutely pathetic to see what's going on in the, in the area of marriage and family, how everything is breaking down. It's because we have rejected God's rules, His instructions. And now we're seeing the total disintegration of families and society. You would think at this point, people would say, you know what, maybe we're not doing this right. Maybe we need to get back to what God has said. But it doesn't work that way. I haven't seen it. In fact, one of my favorite commentators, William MacDonald, said, and I quote, he said, we all know there's a great revulsion against this teaching in our day. People accuse Paul of being a, a bigoted bachelor, a male chauvinist, a woman hater, or they say his views reflect the social customs of his day but are no longer applicable today. Such statements are, of course, a frontal attack on the inspiration of the scriptures. These are not merely Paul's words. They are the words of God. To refuse them is to refuse him and invite difficulty and disaster, end quote. So either we obey and are blessed or we disobey and we reap the consequences. God gave that choice to Israel back in Deuteronomy 30. I'm laying before you today blessing and cursings, life and death. Remember before his people came into the promised land? Under Joshua, Moses addressed them one last time. Deuteronomy means the second law. He, he reiterated the law a second time. And he said, look, I'm laying before you today life and death, blessing and cursing. Obey God and live and be blessed and prosper. Disobey God, you'll reap the consequences. Now, I know that there are some women here this morning who probably are married to an unbeliever, and you might be thinking, but my husband is not saved. I mean, how can I submit to a man like that? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Because Peter talks about this. 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 1, we'll only take the first six verses, I won't try to do the whole passage he starts out like paul wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands again the greek word hupotasso voluntarily place yourself under the authority of your husbands he goes on to say be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word now here peter closes the loophole 
on all the gals who are married to unbelievers who say, well, if my husband was a believer, I would submit to him, but he's not, therefore I can't. Peter says, look, wives, submit to your husbands even if some don't obey the word. In other words, even if some are unbelievers. But again, I'll insert what Paul said, as to the Lord. So again, it's not absolute submission. It's as long as he doesn't tell you to violate anything God has told you to do. But there's a great benefit that happens with this, Peter said. That, you know, these unbelieving husbands, that without a word, verse 2, they may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear or reverence, is the idea. The New, King, uh, the, uh, New Living Translation tra translates that last part this way. Your godly lives will speak to them without any words from you. They will be won over to Christ by observing your pure and reverent lives. Girls, let me just say this. Your husbands, if you're married to an unbeliever, your husbands are not going to get saved by you playing the Holy Spirit and badgering them. I know that a lot of gals have good intentions, and I'm not, I know you're zealous to see your husband saved. But again, you know, leaving him constant messages in his lunchbox, uh, uh, constantly badgering him, you know, about getting saved, you know, that doesn't really do anything. It just drives him farther away. I, I had a, a lady years ago, older lady, very sweet woman, saved, wanted to see her husband get saved, invited me over for dinner one night, you know, we're sitting there and her and uh, her husband and myself, and, and after we finished dinner, she, she turns to me and says, okay, now tell him. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Go ahead, go ahead. You know, and his husband's like, what? She totally ambushed the guy, you know. I mean, I don't think that approach really does a lot. What is far more effective in reaching your husband for Christ is if you don't really say anything to badger him, just be a godly woman. Just let your light shine. Be respectful, be submissive, be in the word, you know, be filled with the spirit, let the love of Christ radiate through you. That, to me, without even saying a word, that's going to be used by God to touch his heart and to save him. And Peter went on to say in verse 3, Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. Now, let me just stop there because there are Christian groups that interpret this to mean that Christian women are not to, to, to do anything to make themselves look pretty at all. Good heavens. Uh, that's not what Peter's saying. I mean, he's not saying that Christian women can't look good. It's What's in view here is the preoccupation with outward beauty to the neglect of inward beauty. It's a call to Christian wives to put their priorities in order, not to go around looking like Genesis 1 verse 2, you know, without form and void. <laughs> or as some lady called in years ago to J. Vernon McGee's radio show. J. Vernon McGee was a great... Christian teacher and pastor and uh, southern gentleman and um, in the south especially things are very proper and this older woman called up his radio show one day and said uh, you know just absolutely incensed that these young Christian women were wearing makeup into church now and she said to Dr. McGee Dr. McGee certainly you don't agree with that certainly you're against that and McGee said madam if the barn needs painting paint it <laughs> But Peter is just emphasizing the importance of the inner beauty. And uh, he said in verse 4, you know, rather 
instead of adorning the outward, rather let it be the hidden person of the heart that you adorn is the idea, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Now again, this is so foreign to our society today. Today the world encourages women to be loud, rebellious, screaming for their rights, demanding to be heard. And of course, so much of it has been fueled by feminism over the years, uh, which encourages women not to become the slaves of men in marriage. They really discourage women from getting married. But even if they do get married, then of course they tell them to throw off their husband's authority, to rule over themselves, you know, go out and pursue your own career because if he can do it, I can do it kind of a mentality. This is so contrary to what God is saying, right? It does indicate we are in the last days where self-love is so rampant and it leads to such things like rebellion and, um, and, and just, you know, wanting to do what I want to do without any thought for anybody else. And of course, the world thinks this kind of stuff is so great. It's amazing to me. I'm not going to get into any details this morning. But it's amazing to me the people and the things that the world exalts and magnifies. Jesus said, those things that are highly esteemed by the world are an abomination in the sight of God. Um, whatever the world applauds, you better, that's a red flag for the Christian church. This is the message the world is preaching to women. And I've heard or read articles by more than one Christian, uh, by more than one woman who bought into that all the Gloria Steinem stuff and so on, and didn't get married, pursued a career, and now is in her late 40s and 50s, lonely, has reached a, a measure of success in the business world, left her totally empty, empty. She has no children now. She's regretting her decisions. Even Gloria Steinem, last time I heard, was married. They're telling women for years, don't get married. Don't put yourself into that slavery. She softened, got married, Saw her on TV and did an interview with her and her husband. How many women, though, did she convince was wrong to get married? See, the world preaches a message that God says is absolutely contradictory to what I want you to do. The world says, demand your rights. Don't put, let your husband control you. But don't let him put you under his authority. You do what you want to do. And here God is saying, look, what's precious to me is a gentle and quiet spirit in the heart of a woman coupled with an attitude of submission towards her husband. God says, this to me is more precious than anything in a woman. Now, again, that doesn't mean that as women, you know, you have no rights, no input, uh, no say-so in the decisions that affect your marriage and household. Of course you do. You and your husband are partners. You have mutual input. It just means, though, that God has placed the husband above his wife and she is to be a godly example to him and to her children, to be a submissive wife, gentle, patient. It's just God's design for marriage. Obey it. God will bless your marriage, your household, your family. Disobey it. Families begin to disintegrate. But all they're doing... In Peter's doing here primarily is just saying, you know, don't listen to the world, girls, and let them tell you how you are to live your life. You go to the Word of God, because in God's eyes, a woman with a quiet and gentle spirit who's got a submissive heart towards her husband, that is more precious than any outward adorning could ever be. That, in God's eyes, is very precious to him. 
Now I'll just finish reading verses 5 and 6 out of Peter 3, 1 Peter 3, where he, Peter goes on to say, This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They trusted God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. In other words, ladies, I know that to be submissive to husbands, especially those who are not saved, is a scary thing because you're afraid that they're going to make some major mistakes, and they probably will. Trust God. Do what God has said. I mean, I know that some women would say at this point, but, you know, my husband is an unbeliever. And what if he's going to make a decision I know is a big mistake? What do I do? Or even a Christian woman who's got a, a, man, a husband who's saved is about to make a big mistake uh, in the way of a decision. They say, well, what can I do? What should I do? Well, I'll tell you what you should not do. You should never try to usurp his authority and force him to do what you want. Because if you only obey your husband when you want to, that's not really submission. It's not really submission. Say, well, then what do I do? What can I do? Well, there's a godly way to handle it. Let me just end this morning by talking to you about Esther. Okay, I want to use Esther as an illustration of what a woman should do when her husband is about to make or has made a very bad decision that she would like him to reverse or to change or not enter into in the first place. You remember the story of Esther. And I won't get into all the the details. You can read about it in in the book uh, that bears her name. But through a set of circumstances, Esther, who was a Jewess, wound up as queen, married to a man named Ahasuerus, who was the king of Persia. Well, Esther was raised from a little girl by her uncle. Some say a cousin, but many say uncle, uh, Mordecai, who was a godly Jew. And uh, he raised Esther. Her parents obviously had died when she was young. So he raised her like a father to her. And now she's queen. Now, King Ahasuerus had a guy that was very close to him. It was like an advisor, like his chief of staff, you might say. His name was Haman. Haman, of course, was not a Jew. He was a Persian, but he was a very proud little guy. And, of course, because he had such a very high position in the king's administration, whenever he walked down the street, everybody bowed to Haman. Everybody made a big fuss over him. Oh, what a wonderful guy. And just, you know, just really poured it on. Mordecai didn't like Haman, knew he was a phony, and just stood there with his arms crossed and wouldn't even bow when Haman walked by. This really bugged Haman. I mean, really bugged him. Finally, he decided he was going to get rid of this guy. He devised the plan and got the king to sign a hasty decree. At one point... In the future, it wound up being about 12 months in the future. On a certain day, all the Jews in the kingdom were going to be killed. Ahasuerus signed this decree, not realizing his own wife was a Jewess. So now the Jews have a sentence of death upon their heads. Mordecai goes to the palace to see Esther and says, Esther, do you realize what's going on here? Our people are going to be killed in a few months. And so Mordecai went to Esther and said, look, you've got to talk to the king about this Haman. He's, he's going to have all your people, all of us killed. And she said, well, you don't understand. I can't just go into the king anytime I want. If he hasn't sent for me and I walk into his presence and he doesn't lift the golden scepter up, man, it's my head. And Mordecai said, Esther, do you think that you've come to this place by your own doing? 
Don't you think God has got a reason that you're here? And if you don't use your position that God has placed you in to benefit your people and stand up against this injustice, don't you realize that it's not going to save you? You're going to be, you're under the king's decree too. You're going to be killed as well. But how do you know that you haven't been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this? Esther said, okay, I'll tell you what. I will go ahead and I will fast with my, uh, my uh, handmaidens. And you tell the Jews to fast in the kingdom. And uh, in three days, I'll go in before the king. And if I perish, I perish. But I want you to notice as you read the story what she did. How did she handle her husband? First of all, it says in chapter 4, verse 16, she fasted and prayed. She fasted and prayed. Then, in chapter 5, verse 1, she chose the right time. She waited three days. Three days to prepare her heart in prayer. Three days for God to prepare His heart through prayer. Then it also says in chapter 5, verse 1, and here's where the feminist would really get upset. She put on her prettiest dress. She made herself look pretty. Put on her prettiest dress, the robes of the court. Chapter 5, verse 4, she prepared for her husband a gourmet dinner. Check it out. She prepared a feast. Number five, she presented her request in a humble and respectful way. Chapter seven and eight tell us. The whole key to Esther's success was her attitude. The very thing that Peter is stressing in chapter three, verses three through six. Let me say this. Most marital problems are the direct result of lousy attitudes on the part of husbands and wives. Attitude is such a very important thing, right? Attitude can make or break an entire marriage because it can make or break the communication that is essential to a marriage. If you've got issues that need to be discussed, if you come at each other like combatants with a lousy attitude, guess what? Nothing's going to get done. You're going to stiffen your necks, dig yourselves in deeper, and you're going to fight to the end. And that's what usually happens. Marriages crumble because of these lousy selfish, take-no-prisoner kind of attitude that husbands and wives often have. Now, you might be thinking, well, what if I do this Esther thing? Okay. And he still insists on making this decision, which I believe is a big mistake. What do I do then? Then you get a frying pan and nail them. No. <laughs> look, look, go ahead and submit to him anyway, because that's God's will. That's what God's commanded to do. But notice what Tony Evans said. Tony is a great guy, and he just shoots it right out, doesn't he? Tony said in a marriage series I was watching, he said, submission is knowing how to duck, girls, so God can hit your husband. <laughs> I love that. What does that mean exactly in the real world? Let me tell you what I believe it means. And we'll end with this, I promise, my last closing. You know what? If a wife doesn't try to compete and usurp her husband's authority, if she isn't always badgering him and challenging him on every decision he makes, if she comes across as kind and respectful with the love of Christ, a submissive heart, if she says to him, honey, you know what? I'm your biggest fan in a sense. You know, she, she comes across like, you know what? I know God's called you to be the leader of this family. That's not an easy thing to do. I know that. I want you to know I'm on your team and I am with you. I'm praying for you. I'm, I'm loving you. I'm going to do for you all that God wants me to do. 
What is that going to do for a guy when he's got to make a decision? He's going to be thinking about that decision, isn't he? I got a girl who loved me so much, who is so supportive, so kind. You know what? This decision affects her and the kids, our whole family. You know what? I, I really want to pray about this. Honey, will you pray about it with me? I don't want to enter into this lightly. You see, it puts the weight on his shoulders of being a leader. And if he does make a mistake, if she comes and puts her arms around him and says, Honey, look, I know it was a hard decision. I know we didn't see eye to eye. I know you did what you thought was right. But you know it's going to be okay. You know, we're in this together. I'll pray for you. God will work it out. In the future, that guy's going to pray even doubly hard because he knows he's got a woman that is for him, his biggest supporter, not his biggest challenger. And I think that's going to go a long way in causing a man to really want to be the best husband he can be. A godly wife who loves her husband is the best friend a man has and the most powerful way for a man to be better. When he sees a woman who loves him that much, he's going to want to love her and treat her and lead her with all of his heart. He's going to be a better man. And so, not easy to hear some of this stuff. Because, man, we've all been brainwashed by the world. But with God's help and the power of the Spirit, as we read the Word of God, God will give us grace to get unbrainwashed, start thinking the way God wants us to think. And it's got to start in your marriages, folks. And may God give us grace as we continue through this section to get out of it all that God desires us to, uh, to learn. Father, we just thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness. Father, we are just sinners saved by grace. None of us are worthy of anything from you. But Lord, you bless us in so many ways. And Father, I just pray that you would give us grace as husbands and wives to be all that you want us to be. That we not challenge what you have said and we don't fight with each other, but Lord, we all submit to your word that we as husbands would try to be the best husbands we can possibly be to our wives and that wives would try to be the best wives they can possibly be to their husbands because the goal here, Lord, is not to get our way but to glorify you. Give us grace to do that, Lord. Make us humble servants. We just praise you. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.